and the witch in the wardrobe. We meet Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy Pevensey. They're staying away from home with an old professor. And Lucy, the youngest, hides in an old wardrobe during a game of hide-and-seek and finds herself in the land of Narnia. Edmund, one of her brothers, follows her into the wardrobe and into Narnia. And it is his time that is of concern to us this morning by way of an illustration. He meets the white witch. However, she does not reveal herself to him in such a way. She calls herself the Queen of Narnia. That has a much better ring to it, I suppose. Now, there's far too much to say about the White Witch and from where she has come for the introduction to this sermon this morning. So suffice it to say, she is the current ruler of Narnia, though she shouldn't be. And it was foretold long ago that four children, two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve, would restore Narnia to its rightful rulers. Needless to say, she would be a bit concerned at the sight of this boy, especially when she learns that he has one brother and two sisters. She offers him something to drink and something to eat, and while he snacks on the food, she makes him a promise if he would bring his siblings with him back to Narnia, she would make him king. She says she needs a prince who would one day be king and he just happened to be handsome and clever enough for the job. And almost as soon as she sends him on his way, on his mission, he runs into his sister, who was already in Narnia, Lucy. But Lucy tells him about the white witch's true identity, which she had learned from the fawn, Mr. Tumnus. And yet Edmund lies about having met her already and has promised to bring the others to her. He wanted to be king. And later, once all of the children had made their way into Narnia, Edmund slips away from dinner without their knowing and travels to the witch's castle. Edmund served the king of self. And he wanted everyone else to do the same. In his heart, he was the ruler And he wanted that externalized. He wanted everyone else to see him for what he really was. At least in his eyes. A king. Thankfully, things turn out differently for Edmund than he had planned, as we will see later on. This, however, is where we will leave our good friend Edmund for the time being. And with this story in mind, I want to turn our attention to another king, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Yet in order to understand Nebuchadnezzar, we must understand the context of his story. So if you've not already done so, I invite you now to turn to the book of Daniel. Uh, You can begin in chapter 1. We will spend our time in chapter 4, but we need a few minutes of review before we really get there. Our text this morning is Daniel 4, 34-37. I've entitled this sermon, A King's Conversion. The key words are for our worshipers in training are King, Self, and God. And after we consider, as I said, some brief contextual matters, we will examine this text, these verses, under two headings. 
what I'm calling Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, and then a fitting response. The events of the book of Daniel span the time period from 605 B.C. to about 530 B.C. If you don't remember, under the reign of King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the kingdom was torn in two. There were ten tribes in the north, Israel, and there was Judah and Benjamin left in the south. In 722 B.C., Assyria sacked the ten tribes of Israel in the north, And this was during the reign of King Hezekiah in Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Judah, in the south, the southern kingdom. And during the reign of Jehoiakim, who was the fifth ruler after Hezekiah to reign in Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, first invades Judah in 605 B.C. It isn't until 587 B.C. that Jerusalem is completely destroyed, but the first wave of captives is taken in 605. This is how Daniel finds himself in Babylon. For time's sake, we will sprint through the stories uh, in the first couple of chapters in this book. If you're not familiar with them, I do urge you to read them later on. In Daniel chapter 1, we are told of how Daniel and his companions come into the favor of King Nebuchadnezzar through their faithfulness to God. In Daniel chapter 2, we are told of how Daniel is made ruler of the whole province of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and how Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego as they're better known, how they served under him. Chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and only Daniel is is able to interpret it. Upon the interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar falls to the ground and pays homage to Daniel and his God and promotes Daniel to be his chief prefect. See this in chapter 2, 46 through 48. And in verse 49, Daniel asked for his companions to come with him. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds an idol a giant golden image, possibly of himself, for the people to worship. However, a report comes to Nebuchadnezzar that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refuse to worship the golden image. Nebuchadnezzar confronts them on the matter and threatens to throw them in the fiery furnace if they do not worship. And upon their answer, affirming their refusal to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar and his gods, he is filled with fury and rage and throws them in to his furnace. But to his dismay, they are not harmed. Nebuchadnezzar responds in verses 28 through 30 of chapter 3 with seeming more praise to God. Yeah, this is mere spiritual conviction without true conversion. He has not truly bowed his knee to the king, as we will see. But I do believe in chapter 4 that we are told of Nebuchadnezzar's new birth. There is some debate as to whether or not he does indeed become a true believer in Yahweh. And though it's unlikely that we can be 100% certain, 
I do take it to be probable that he has indeed been born again. But whatever the case, whether he is fluffing perhaps with his words, we can learn some very profound lessons from his experience here in chapter 4. Chapter 4 appears to be Nebuchadnezzar's own report of his conversion. Verses 1 through 3, he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show you, to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion endures from generation to generation. And then beginning in verse 4, he tells of a second dream that he has. He dreams of a giant tree that is cut down, leaving nothing but a stump. Again, he seeks out, as before, all the wise men of Babylon, but to no avail. And finally, Daniel has to interpret his dream for him. And Daniel makes a decree. The tree is representative of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel then tells the king to repent in verse 27, lest all of the calamity from this tree being cut down and how it represents Nebuchadnezzar and his uh, future exile, it's going to come upon him if he doesn't repent. And whatever Nebuchadnezzar's initial reaction is, nothing truly changes in the long run. You see this in verses 28 through... 30 says all this came upon king nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of babylon and the great king answered and said is not this great babylon which i have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty As we see in these verses, a year after Daniel's prophecy, nothing has changed. Nebuchadnezzar is boasting of all his might. But while the words are still in his mouth, a voice from heaven rebukes him. O King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 31, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. This then brings us to our text where Nebuchadnezzar, in my estimation, finishes telling the story of how God changed him from one of the most brutal, ruthless, and proud kings of world history who loved and lived for self to a man humbled who loved and lived for God. So I want to read our verses. Keep in mind that we will be looking at this under two headings. We will consider his conversion And then a fitting response. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. 
For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So first, the king's conversion, which is seen in verses 34 through 36. We will examine these three verses in two parts. Nebuchadnezzar's doxology, and then his reestablishment and restoration to his kingdom. At the end of the days, allotted for Nebuchadnezzar's punishment, he lifts up his eyes to heaven. Nebuchadnezzar has spent the last seven years perhaps periods of time, uh, some unknown periods of time, if it isn't years. He spent it in exile from his kingdom. And now he finally, we see, verse 34, he turns to heaven. Perhaps he no longer looks to self for help, but he looks to God. Through his repentance, his reason and his understanding return to him. There is a cause and effect relationship here. It says he lifts his eyes to heaven and his reason returns. Nebuchadnezzar has gone from being the most powerful, ferocious king in the world to a beast crawling about in the fields, eating grass, soaking wet from the dew. It was humiliating. God had taken nearly everything away from him because of his pride. Yet he now sees the truth. How drastic is the difference in his words from earlier in chapter uh, in 4, verse 30. It's just not my great Babylon. And now, before his exile, it was his great Babylon. He had built it for the glory of his majesty. He ruled. He reigned. Nebuchadnezzar loved and lived upon self. Self was his God. But now he blesses God. He blesses the Most High. God is the one who lives forever, he says. Not Nebuchadnezzar. And he praises God for three things in these verses. 34b through 35. He praises God for His eternality. He praises God as the one who esteems the peoples as nothing. And He praises God for His omnipotence. I want to look at each of those in turn now. In verse 34b, he says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar has come to the realization that only one kingdom, only one dominion will last forever. In an instant, his kingdom was taken away from him. In one moment of time, he was stripped of all his glory and honor. But Nebuchadnezzar has come to see that he is not the one that's going to live forever. Perhaps he has learned a lesson similar to that of Solomon from Ecclesiastes 2, 18 through 20. 
Solomon writes, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. Nebuchadnezzar has come to see that it is God's dominion that is everlasting and it is His, it is his kingdom that endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar's will not. His will crumble and fall. Perhaps he is recalling the first dream he had recorded for us in chapter 2. Kingdom after kingdom uh, after him would arise until at last the kingdom would come of which there would be no end. The kingdom God will set up shall never be destroyed, nor shall that kingdom be left to another people. Perhaps, it seems, Nebuchadnezzar now sees in the end it is God's kingdom and His alone that will stand. Second, he praises God as the one who esteems the peoples as nothing. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Previously, Nebuchadnezzar had surveyed all the glories and wonders of Babylon and it was wonderful and glorious. But he boasted in himself. He surveyed all the people under his power and thought himself to be a great king. But now he has come to realize that he, along with every person on planet earth, he counts as nothing. Compared to the glory and honor and might of God, the entire world pales in comparison. Other nations looked at the Babylonian army and saw a formidable foe. God looks at the Babylonian army and counts them as nothing. They are but dust in His hands. Apart from God, man has man is nothing. And Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, has come to see this reality. Third, Nebuchadnezzar says, God does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 35b. God does whatever He pleases. This is the truth contained in Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Previously, Nebuchadnezzar has, he had seen himself as the sovereign one. Previously, he saw himself as the great and glorious one. Can you hear it in his words in verse 30? Is not this great Babylon which I built the majesty of my glory. Listen to the arrogance. Listen to his boasting in self. But now he has been dethroned. Now he has been made to see aright. He now knows that God is king and God does as he pleases in the entire universe. There is nowhere and no one that escapes the will and power of God. All things and all people are subject to His sovereign decree. And he makes this point further by saying, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? There is none who can hold back God's arm. The phrase translated... 
verse 35, stay his hand, carries the connotation of contending with, holding back, or even striking. Perhaps the idea is that of a parent popping the hand of a child, reaching for something he's not supposed to have. No one can pop God on the hand and say, what have you done? What are you doing? No one can prevent God from doing His good and perfect will. Nothing will thwart God. Nothing will get in His way. No one, not even the great king of Babylon himself, can hinder God from accomplishing His purposes. And now, after seven periods of time of insanity, Nebuchadnezzar can see that he is not God. That there is a God to whom all will answer. If you're a Christian this morning... This should provide you with great hope. Your God does all that He pleases in the universe. And it is infinitely for your good and His glory. But if you are not a Christian this morning, this should terrify you. This truth should rattle you to the bone. Will you consider the words of King Nebuchadnezzar? Will you learn from him? I pray that we will. Second, considering his conversion now, and to look at his reestablishment and restoration to his kingdom. In verse 36, Nebuchadnezzar recounts what else happened to him when his reason returned to him and how he was restored. He not only, he says, was restored to his previous position of power, but what? More greatness was added to him. And I want to ask a question regarding his restoration. Why? Why is Nebuchadnezzar restored back to his kingdom? What's the purpose? Why didn't God just leave him where he was? Why didn't he just kill him? Perhaps there are many reasons, but I want to consider just a few particular help to us this morning. First, because it pleased God to do so. Remember? God does all that He pleases. It was part of His good and perfect will to restore Nebuchadnezzar. He could have just killed him. He could have opened his eyes to the truth and left him in poverty, but he didn't. It pleased God to bring Nebuchadnezzar back to the land of the living. And who are we, O men, to answer back to God? However, I do think there are a few other reasons that may help us understand better. God was fulfilling His word to Nebuchadnezzar. After interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream a few verses earlier, Daniel prophesies to Nebuchadnezzar, verses 24 through 26. He says that all of these things from the dream will come upon you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. This punishment was a demonstration to Nebuchadnezzar, not an ultimate judgment. God gives kingdoms to and takes kingdoms from 
whom he chooses. It completely defies any kind of reasonable logic that Nebuchadnezzar should come back after seven long periods of time of insanity just to reclaim his throne. He's been eating grass with the oxen. And everyone is just cool and okay that he's come back? Far more likely is that God supernaturally intervenes and gives Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom back so that he will know, so that we will know that heaven rules. Do you know that? God humbles Nebuchadnezzar not only in his exile, but in his restoration as well. Nebuchadnezzar is restored to his place as king over Babylon so that it will be evident to him and to us that God is in charge. Another reason, lastly, the last reason here, it's a picture of God's restoring man back into a right bearing of his image. In the fall that we're all familiar with, as described in Genesis 3, man has marred the image of God in which he was created. God created man in his own image to rule and have dominion over the earth and to reflect the glory of God. And man has marred that image in his rebellion. Nebuchadnezzar was a king like Adam in the garden. And he, like Adam, was cast out of his kingdom Upon his restoration, he was given more glory than he had before. This is indeed true of our redemption as well. The glory that Nebuchadnezzar had as a restored king was greater than his former glory. And it reflects our greater glory. The glory that we have as redeemed sons and daughters of God is far greater than the glory that Adam had in the garden. Now I want to turn, consider a fitting response to these words and to this truth that God reigns. First, Nebuchadnezzar's, and then ours. What's our response? Nebuchadnezzar now turns in present time. Present time... Uh, relative to his story that he began telling in verses 1 through 3. And he concludes in verse 37. This is his conclusion. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is what the Most High has done for him. Now he praises Extols and honors the King of Heaven. He once extolled and honored and praised Himself. Now He does these things for God. Now He lives for God. He has been brought to the end of Himself. God has made Him nothing in His own eyes. And God has become everything for Him. And again, Nebuchadnezzar names three more things for which he praises God. First, he says that God's works are right. This word translated right can also be translated truth. God's actions are truth. His deeds are truth. He does not ever do wrong. He never errs. He never makes a mistake. Second, Nebuchadnezzar says that God's ways are just. 
God's ways of dealing with man are just. They are judgment, literally. They are the standard of right and wrong. God can do no wrong. He is the judge. He is the standard. And I believe Nebuchadnezzar now truly from his heart praises him for that. I recently had a conversation with a teacher that I had in high school. Perhaps my favorite teacher even. But he considers himself to be an agnostic. For him, at the end of the day, what matters is what you can scientifically prove and empirically verify. Now, while I could go on and on about his flawed assumptions about the nature of the world and empirical evidence, there is but one point I want to make from my experience conversing with him a few weeks ago. What is the ultimate standard of right and wrong for him? Who is it? It's himself. He considers himself to be the ultimate standard of right and wrong. He doesn't say it that way, but he does. Now, he abhors slavery, rightfully so. Yet, when I pressed him as to why he believes it to be wrong, he said, because I believe it to be wrong. There is no ultimate standard outside himself. He is the ultimate arbitrator of truth. He is the ultimate standard of justice in his mind. This is what Nebuchadnezzar previously believed about himself. But it seems that he no longer does believe this. No longer does he see himself as the one to whom all men must answer, but he sees that he must answer to God And God's works are right and His ways are just. And lastly, Nebuchadnezzar praises God because He humbles the proud. Nebuchadnezzar has experienced firsthand the humbling power of God's hand. Nebuchadnezzar was proud. He was arrogant. He was high and mighty in his own eyes. But God humbled him. God brought him low. And Nebuchadnezzar praises Him for it. Sinclair Ferguson writes in his commentary on Daniel, once he had looked at Babylon as his own creation in a spirit of pride and self-worship, now he lifted his eyes to heaven in recognition of the sovereign reign of God. God is able to bring the haughty one down. Those who walk in pride will be humbled either in this life or the one to come. So ask yourselves, I beg you this question, when will you bow the knee to King Jesus? Will you humble yourself now, casting your anxieties upon Him, trusting that He cares for you? Or will you have to bow in agony on the last day? Well, what shall be our response? How shall we live? What does this conversion of this ruthless, barbaric king have to do with us? While I'm sure there are many reasons, I want to zero in on one thing for the last few minutes that we have together this morning. There is only one king. God is king. 
And yet, you and I love to order our lives around another self-proclaimed king. The king of self. Nebuchadnezzar's story, though, helps us to see the danger of serving the king of self rather than King Jesus. There are two kinds of people here this morning. Two categories. There are those who love and serve King Self and are making war every day against King Jesus. And there are those who love and serve King Jesus and by His helping Spirit are making war against King Self every day. And I want to say a word for each group and then we will be done. For those of you who serve King Self, I pray that you will hear these words. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit this morning would be pleased to pierce through your hard hearts. Perhaps you're here because it seems like the right thing to do. Come to church. Perhaps you're here because of pressure from family or friends. You come to church Maybe, and you, you serve and work, but really you're not here for Christ, you're here for yourself. You want to seem holy, you want to seem busy for Jesus, but you have not died to yourself. Pastor Al Martin once said, the cross does not give us a minor shift or two with a regard with regard to a few of our ethical and moral and religious values. The cross radically disrupts the very center and citadel of your life from self to Christ. And if the cross has not done that, you're not a Christian. If you think that you can simply tweak a few minor, perhaps even major external actions and not die to self, you're not a Christian. If you believe that all God will require of you on the last day is to say that you showed compassion, you tried to do the right thing, but you have not been crucified with Christ, then you are not a Christian. If you trust that because you came to church a few times, or several times, or every single Sunday of your life, you have not been born again, then you're not a Christian. Pastor Martin, he goes on and he says that unless the cross brings us from a life of commitment to serve self, whether it's religious self, moral self, proud self, covetous self, lustful self, prideful self, unforgiving self, lazy self, it doesn't matter. To be a Christian, you cannot serve yourself. Perhaps some of you are here and you don't want to be here at all. You serve yourself and that is that. Please hear me. The reign of self is a deadly thing. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. Friends, please hear the Word of God this morning. You must not go on any longer living after the flesh. Paul says that those who live after the flesh will die. Do you want to die? 
I don't mean die in this life. We all have to do that. I mean die in eternity. Do you want to spend eternity cut off from God? Do you want to spend eternity cut off from His grace? Do you want to spend forever cut off from His smile and His favor? Do you want to spend eternity cut off from His people? I hope you will answer, No! I hope you will tremble as you think of that dreadful state for which you are headed. Repent and believe the gospel. If you do not stop relying on yourself, then you will spend eternity in hell paying for your sins. The kingdom of self may come crashing down on you in any moment. One moment you are surveying your province, all that you have built for yourself, your kingdom And the next thing you know, you hear a voice from heaven, depart from me into the utter abyss, you worker of lawlessness. Don't delay another moment. Stop building your own little kingdom that's going to be destroyed. Believe the gospel. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, perfectly obeying the law of God so that He might be an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice and substitute in the place of sinners. He died on the cross not to show you merely that God loves you and to set an example for you, but He died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God. He died on the cross to pay for sins. He became sin. He bore the wrath of God so that you might not have to bear it yourself, that you might become the righteousness of God. But if you continue to serve King Self and live for Him, you will bear it. You will die in your sins. If you continue building your own kingdom, making war against the gods, then you will pay for your sins and have to endure the wrath of God for all eternity. So once again, I plead with you, if you are in here this morning and you do not know Christ Jesus, repent and believe. And for those of you who love our great King, and you serve Him. I want to return to Edmund for a moment. What happened to him? Most of you are probably familiar with the story, but in case you're not, Edmund ratted out his siblings and all the rest of Narnia to the White Witch. And he ends up the witch's slave. But thankfully, he's rescued from her clutches by Aslan's forces. Aslan, the true ruler of Narnia. However, there is a problem. Edmund is a traitor. And according to the deep magic and the law, traitors belong to the white witch. And she has the right to kill. Yet rather than allowing the witch to kill young Edmund, Aslan offers himself as a substitute for him. The white witch kills Aslan in the place of Edmund, yet all seems lost. For she says and makes clear that she will go back on her word and she will kill all who fight for Aslan, including the four children. Yet because he offered himself a flawless substitute, he does not remain dead. He comes back to life and through his life, the white witch is defeated and Edmund and all his siblings are made true kings and queens of Narnia and they reign in righteousness. So for those of you in here loving, serving King Jesus, I pray for you. My prayer is that you would be strengthened 
in your endeavor and fight against sin and self. My prayer is that these words this morning would be life to you. My prayer is that you will be encouraged and built up and conformed to the image of Christ through these words. My prayer for you is that you will continue. You will come to love Jesus Christ and His people all the more because of these words. You serve King Jesus, but King Self raises his ugly head every day. And every day you must ward him off. Every day he sends his army to make war on you. Every day his archers send arrows of lust flying toward your soul. Every day He sends His cavalry of anger to trample you down. Every day His spies of bitterness and envy seek out your very life. But you are not alone. Your King, the King, fights for you. He empowers you to withstand the onslaught of the enemy. He upholds you. He guides you. He comforts you. He's given you allies in the church fighting this same battle. Your King Jesus leads the way and He has delivered you from the kingdom of darkness and self and transferred you to His own kingdom, the kingdom of light. He has made you His willing subject. He has delivered you from the tiny, futile kingdom of yourself that will be destroyed in the coming ages. He has brought you to His everlasting kingdom forever. I want to close with a quote from the Puritan William Taylor. As we reflect on this word today, that we've heard today, and and the word that we heard two weeks ago from... Pastor Nick, when we consider the coming increase of persecution, the arrogance of king and kingdoms portrayed in Nebuchadnezzar, let us consider these words. Amidst wars and revolutions, amidst the scheming of emperors and chancellors seeking only their own aggrandizement, God is ruling still. He will bring out clear and definite at last before men's eyes the much forgotten truth that the allegiance of their hearts is due to Him. This is our comfort amidst the movements of our times. No doubt, as men pursue their schemes and rage in their ambition, He may seem asleep as Jesus was in the little boat upon the lake, but by and by He will awake and cry, Peace, be still. And in the calm thereby produced, the church will go forward on its glorious mission and gather in the saved into its bosom. There is one who can say and who will say at the proper time to czar and sultan alike, to president and congress alike, hitherto shall ye come but no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. And for ourselves, why should we wait till a judgment teaches us this truth 
as taught to Nebuchadnezzar. Let us tonight submit ourselves to God through Jesus Christ and yield to Him the throne of our hearts and homage of our lives. O Lord, how wonderful are Your signs and wonders that You have done for us. How great are Your signs, how mighty are Your wonders. Your dominion is an everlasting dominion and Your kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and You do according to Your will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay Your hand or say to You, What have you done? All your works are truth and your ways are judgment. Everyone that walks in pride, you are able to humble. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.